Welcome to Fiddler's AI Explained. I'm with Patrick Hall. Patrick Hall is the co-founder and principal scientist of BNH AI. He's also the visiting faculty at George Washington School of Business. Um, so he advises clients on AI risk, um, and we're going to be diving into a lot of stuff today. I'm really excited to hear what Patrick has to say. Um, my name is Mary Reagan. I've worn a couple of different hats in my lifetime, started out as a data scientist, uh, moved into product management, and most recently I've been helping with our community efforts here at Fiddler. Um, Patrick, anything that you want to say just to sort of kick us off and introduce yourself um, that I might have missed? Uh, I think just briefly some of the things that we were talking about before people jumped on Um I've helped my firm support the NIST AI risk management framework, which I think is a really important development for uh, people working in our space. And also, as, as we were discussing, I sit on the board of what's known as the AI incident database, which is a um, sort of open source intelligence effort and an information sharing effort around public failures of um, AI and machine learning systems. Uh -huh. But yeah, so so. I, I just bring those up because I, I hope they sort of frame some of the uh, points that we'll get into later. Great. Um, so yeah, let's just get started. So your law firm, it helps businesses manage like a variety of things, privacy, fairness, security, mm -hmm. transparency of AI. And it, you know, you're providing really highly technical advice to manage um, AI models. And this ends up, of course, affecting, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of people around mm -hmm. the world. Um, can you just give us an overview of your work? Yes. And, um, another one of the things that I should have said, uh, when you asked me if I had anything else to add was I'm not a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. Nothing I'm saying is legal advice. Um, if, if, uh, anybody in the audience would like legal advice in these topics, I can connect you to actual attorneys. Um, so, so I run the, um, technical side of the house at BNH AI. And um, yeah, I mean, you you gave a good basic description of, of what we do uh, and and to kind of layer in some more details, I would say we we do a lot of data privacy work and I'm I'm probably less involved in that. Um, some of my attorney partners are, are probably better qualified to work on especially legal data privacy issues. I do sometimes advise on sort of the privacy enhancing technologies aspect of, of data privacy. Um, we do a lot of work in non-discrimination, as I'm sure audience members are aware, um, for many reasons, not just bad data. Uh, AI and machine learning systems have a nasty tendency to perpetuate sort of um, existing social biases. And um, we, we do a lot of work around policies, governance, testing, and remediation of, of those biases in machine learning systems. Um, we do a lot of model audits and that, that, you know, that can mean different things to different firms, but that's essentially when we come in and kind of investigate um, a model and try to, uh, you know, hold it account to some standard, whether, whether it's an existing law or whether that's like the NIST AI risk management framework sort of depends on, on the um, client's needs. Uh, and then 
Yeah. So for transparency, it's often about adverse action notices in, in finance. Lots of finance companies have questions about how to generate accurate adverse action notices with machine learning models. Um, and there's there's even sort of red teaming, you know, sort of sort of looking into the security of of different machine learning systems. And, and so that's yeah, please. Because yeah. we actually had a conversation a few weeks yeah. ago from someone from Lavender AI who was mentioning red yeah. teaming. And it was actually a new term for me. So mm -hmm. can you define what that means and give our Yeah. It it it's an interesting job. So I think like so okay, like I I you know, I want to take one step back and say one of the most interesting things we've done with NIST is work on this glossary and if work on a glossary of trustworthy AI terms. And I think if I if I have a second during the conversation, I'll I'll try to go find the link and, and put it in the chat or something. But um, I think there's a huge vocabulary problem in AI and data science in general. And I don't think trustworthy or responsible uh, AI or ethic, you know, we're, we're seeing what the issues are, just trying to determine what these terms mean. And I would say red teams, red teaming is the same way. So I hear people using red teaming um, in the more traditional information security sense, which is where you have a separate team or an external team come in and really um, test your systems for vulnerabilities in uh, a very adversarial and thorough manner. Mm -hmm. um, I also hear red teaming used um, almost uh, almost the same as a model audit or a model validation exercise. And I think just, especially in our work with uh, generative AI, that does seem to be the kind of preferred way to talk about uh, validation efforts around generative AI systems. So instead of saying we're validating this, you know, generative AI system, I oftentimes hear people say we're red teaming a generative AI system. And I think that's totally fine. Like I, you know, at some, in some ways we need, need clearer terms just to communicate and that kind of bugs me. But in the end, as long as people are sort of testing systems in a thorough and, and adversarial and objective way, um, I, I also don't care what you call it, I guess. So, so red teaming can be a very sort of specific um, sort of bringing external or a separate team to um, really adversarially test the system for vulnerabilities in the information security context. But it seems to have just taken on this this more broad notion of model validation and generative AI world. And I think both are fine. That totally makes sense. I'm so one. Thank you for that answer. And two, like, you know, you're sort of in the thick of it, right? You're, every company that is coming to you is, is actively seeking out ways to improve their responsible AI, but that maybe isn't the whole landscape, right? There isn't mm -hmm. necessarily pressure, you know, whether it be legally or from policy perspective, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. get um, companies really to install any sort of, you know, responsible AI framework. I'm mm -hmm. curious how you view that and really like, what you think the most significant barriers to any kind of widespread adoption of responsible AI practices are? Well, I do think, you know, the market pressures in AI machine learning are immense, right? Like people just want to develop and deploy as quickly as possible. And um, that holds true. And I think it is sort of the main barrier of adoption for responsible AI practices, and in my opinion, except in um, regulated verticals. And so 
when you're working in employment or you're working in consumer finance or you're working in housing, it's like, it's really like being in a different world. It, sure. it, it's just a different world than, than totally. say, a, a, a big unregulated tech company. Right. But, you know, so, so if, if sort of market incentives are the main kind of um, blocker to the adoption of responsible AI practices, then I would say the main sort of accelerant of adoption is regulation. And, um, you know, when we started BNH.AI, our, our thesis was that, that AI regulation would be coming. And, you know, at least to a certain extent, that's true. So there's, there's um, the new New York law, uh, New York City law that uh, mandates AI bias audits for tools used in employment. Um, there's the EU AI Act, which um, for smaller companies in the U.S. may not be such a big deal, but a lot of our clients are are sort of large multinational organizations, and for them the EU AI Act is is a huge deal, and and for them AI um, is really expected to be regulated by the end of this year. You know, the the development and use of AI is really supposed to be regulated in the EU um, by the end of this year, and so. And and there's constant talk of sort of AI bills and AI regulation and stuff in the U.S. I I'm I'm not optimistic about that, but I do expect the um, EU AI Act to hit like a ton of bricks. And if you're paying attention, which I don't know why, you know, most people wouldn't be, but there are more and more local laws um, around the use of AI in the United States, and that's sort of what kicked off um, the the big. You know, that that's sort of what led cybersecurity, both products and services to kind of take off was state level breach reporting requirements about, you know, starting to hit about 20 years ago. So um, I I see, you know, insane hype market pressures preventing the adoption of, of um, responsible AI. But I also see sort of a steady drumbeat of regulation uh, that that should accelerate the the adoption of responsible AI. I see. And so like your customer base right now, would you say mm -hmm. primarily in the verticals that are already have, you know, hit like finance, for example, that you mentioned that has heavy policy or are you kind of seen? Yeah. I just, just, I'd, I'd say about half and half really. Interesting. Um, I was curious too. So, cause you know, I was looking over your website before we had this mm -hmm. um, and you wrote there, the biggest barriers to the adoption of AI um, are not technical, they're legal, ethical, and policy related. And I just like, I thought that was such an interesting statement and I would love to mm -hmm. hear that down. I, I guess I still think that's true. Um, I mean, we know, we know how to do machine learning. Um, and I'm, you know, we, we certainly don't always get it right, but you know, the, the basics of sort of training machine learning systems to make specific decisions about, um, sort of con uh, task in a controlled environment. Um, I would say that's a, that's a fairly well-known, uh, uh, commodity. Uh, turns out we can also teach machine learning systems to write documents and generate pictures pretty well too. Uh, so, so I think a, a lot of the basics of the technology are worked out, um, you know, and, and you'll have to forgive me. Like, I don't, I don't consider the, the giant deep learning hyperparameter Easter egg hunt that happened between, you know, 2006 and today to be some kind of huge step forward in technology. Like, like we had, a, we had big breakthroughs in, and sort of visual pattern recognition, you know, starting around, you know, the, the 
the mid aughts into 2010, 2015. Uh, now, now we seem to have big breakthroughs in generative AI. So I think, you know, I, I know for technologists, there's this sort of constant focus on, you know, oh, you, you know, we, we figured out how to make this, this part of the optimization process better. Um, we figured out how to, you know, make some attention mechanism work a little bit better. But I think for consumers, you know, and not to be mean to practitioners, but I think for consumers, those are fairly irrelevant developments. Um, and from a consumer perspective or an end user perspective, like machine learning is somewhat well figured out. It's, it's just, can we manage the risk around it? Can it be legal? Can we make sure it's legal and used legally? Can we align it to human values and human ethics? Um, so I think, you know, my, my thesis continues to be the basics of the technology are mostly worked out. Now, um, it's about, it's about real world adoption and, and in particular in, in high impact use cases. And both both decision making and content generation in many sort of high impact use cases are already regulated. Whether it's done by a person or a computer is is again a little bit irrelevant. Um, it may be harder to understand how the laws apply. It may be harder to regulate or enforce how the laws apply when a computer does these things. But for me, um, you know, it's it's really these alignment. Um, risk management and policy questions around AI that I think are going to be the biggest um, sort of roadblocks, not for the adoption of responsible AI, but for the adoption of AI and machine learning in general over say the next 10 to 20 years. So like in that vein, mm -hmm. you know, how have you seen, you know, I think all of us, I imagine all of our audience members too, everyone can have an example that comes to mind of how AI risk was handled poorly. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, based on the position that you sit, if you could walk mm -hmm. us through some examples that you've seen, of course, um, you know, protecting your clients. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, all right. So, so it's probably safer to talk about the AI incident database in, in this case. Um, and if you haven't looked at the AI incident database, you should Google it and go, and go check it out. You, you know, you might be better off just looking at AI incidents than, than listening to me uh, talk for the next 40 minutes or whatever. But um, the, it, there's just all kinds of failures of these systems. And so anything from like a chess robot breaking somebody's finger to a, um, a robot in an Amazon Pause you for a second. Yeah, yeah. Can you even explain what the incident database is for people who don't know? Like, what what is the yeah? Of that? Let's start there. Well, okay, all right. So there's yeah, there's thing. This is actually a really important point. I think um, large organizations, in my experience, and even individual people, really struggle with notions of like fairness and privacy and transparency. Right? We we all have different expectations around what those mean and around how they might be implemented. And your definition of fairness is probably as good as my definition of fairness. But when we go to implement them mathematically, we might find out that, you know, we, we have some kind of mutually exclusive beliefs. Um, and, and so these notions are really, the, these sort of ethical notions, I think are really hard for large organizations to deal with. Incidents, on the other hand, I think are a known quantity from information security and transportation. Um, Incidents don't really have to involve anyone's sort of politics or ethics. They're just bad things that happen that that cost you money or hurt people. And, and it's not really debatable whether it, money was spent or people were harmed. 
Uh, and so I think instants are a good thing to build around to motivate sort of adoption of responsible machine learning or AI because they, they can help you sidestep some of the really challenging issues around fairness and privacy. Um, and so the incident database is a database of incidents. It's indexed, it's searchable, it's interactive, and it, it has about 500, it has thousands of public reports of, of about more than 500 known public AI and machine learning system failures at this point. And um, the, there's two goals of, of incidents or, or sort of incident reporting in a database. The first one and the most important one is don't repeat past failed AI incidents. So let's come back to that as, an, as, as probably the best example of mishandling AI risk. And then, um, you know, there, there's sort of a um, reputational ding that may, that may disincentivize companies from, from sort of taking their most, from, from acting on their, their sort of most high-risk deployments if they have some, you know, some, some inkling that they might show up in this public database. So I think, in, you know, the incident database has two, two purposes. One, information sharing to prevent repeated incidents. And two, just sort of um, making organizations and the, and the public aware of, of these failures. And, and in that way, maybe disincentivizing some of the highest risk uses of AI. So, so getting back to what I would consider like a really good slash bad example of mishandling AI risk, um, there was a chat bot in 2021 released in um, South Korea or South Korean social media on the Kakao app, a very popular um, app, um, Korean language app. And um, it all it it started making denigrating comments about um, various different types of people uh, and and had to be shut down. Now, this was a near exact repeat of Microsoft Research's very high profile Tay chatbot failure, where Tay was sort of poisoned by Twitter users and started making all kinds of um, racist and obscene statements. Um, and, and if you look at the marketing of these chatbots, if you even, they're, they're both sort of, um, you know, anthropomorphized, which is bad. Um, they're both sort of anthropomorphized morphized cartoon images of young women and they have like light around their faces it it was like it was like the the scatter labs designers just fully repeated the tay failure and and i think that that points to the real level of maturity in a lot of the design of these ai systems you know people are repeating the most people are where people are still repeating just the most famous ai instance and uh had they perhaps check the good old AI incident database before they got started, they might've thought, oh, hey, there's a risk that this chatbot um, might make some biased statements towards different kinds of individuals. And then I have to add on, on Liluda, this is all public. Um, you know, it, it was also handing out people's personal information because they failed to scrub, may have, they apparently, you know, failed to scrub personal information from the training data. So it was both insulting people and um, violating data privacy law, and yeah. and so yeah, I, I'd say that that's that's a there's there's a lot wrong there. But to me, the most wrong thing is repeating a failed design, and so that's a that that's a major reason why I'm into the AI incident database is to get as much information out there about failed designs so that people hopefully stop repeating them. 
So you said one thing you said, you know, mm-hmm. that the chatbot was anthropomorphized and that mm-hmm. is bad. I'm curious. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, yeah. Can you talk about why you think that's bad? Yeah. So I think it's bad because AI and machine learning systems are nowhere near as smart as people. And um, if we over rely on them the way we might rely on human intelligence, people are going to get hurt. And, and um, I think self-driving cars. Go ahead. Yeah. So people are going to get hurt just because, yeah, maybe you're going to go right into what. Yeah. So I, I think the most I think the most obvious example of this is um, self-driving cars. I, I just don't think they're they're possibly ready yet to drive around, you know, sort of crowded, congested streets. Like we can argue back and forth, like, can they, can they operate in closed environments? Can they operate on sort of predefined routes? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But what's absolutely clear to me is we do not know yet know how to make self-driving vehicles that can operate in sort of real dense urban um, environments. And so, you know, if we anthropomorphize AI systems, people start to think, you know, the, the public, the, the, the consumers of the system often start to think that they're as smart as people, right? And I think that's been a big part of issues around chat GPT is that it, it sort of presented as this human-like intelligence. And so, you know, the, the main danger is that we, um, by anthropomorphizing these systems, we sort of imbue them in the public's uh, mindset with, with human-like intelligence and that's dangerous because these systems do not have human-like intelligence. And they, you know, go look at the AI incident database. They, they fail in, in myriad ways. And, um, you know, it, it's, just, it's just not a good thing to overhype the sort of capabilities of consumer products. And, and especially when we know that they can lead to sort of harmful outcomes. And I think anthropomorphization... Um, plays a large role in that kind of overhyping of, of current AI machine learning capabilities. I, think that's- I do not think we're at the dawn of artificial general intelligence. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I think that's really clear. I, I agree with you on that a lot. So thanks for spelling that out. I You mentioned, so right before we got on, you mm-hmm. were talking about how the incident rate had changed in the database. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'm happy to get into that. So um the yeah I at the in I'm a, I'm at one point I was the a leading contributor of incident reports to the database that's how I got into it and um and again I got into it I want to hear I, that story too yeah yeah no no it's <laughs> it, it, it's simple I it's just the thing I was talking about I, I like you and I or or you know a lot of people that that like with advanced degree, a lot of Americans with advanced degrees that work in tech might think that we have good ideas about fairness and privacy. Um, but it turns out that that those ideas are often unworkable with inside of large organizations, often don't align to um, other valid notions about fairness and privacy. And so I just found that to be a really difficult sticking point to implementing responsible AI. And I found incidents to be a much easier thing uh, to to sort of motivate people around responsible AI because we might disagree on what fairness or privacy or transparency means, but we don't want to look stupid and we don't want to hurt people and we don't want to cost our company money. And so, so I found I think incidents are just a really important motivator for responsible AI. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I, I just uh, yeah, yeah, say, yeah, please, I want yeah. to underline that because I 
have been thinking about, you know, obviously at Fiddler, we think about responsible AI and I think that it, you're absolutely right. That's a, kind of an, a brilliant insight for me. And, you know, Thank you. I'm so thankful for you sharing <laughs> that. But you're right, because that's date like cold data that then we can just point to and say, hey, the incidents are going with a clear metric. Yeah, we don't have to argue exactly like you're saying about these sort of nitty gritty. How are we going to measure fairness for this group? Who's defining yeah. fairness? Is it individual fairness? Is it group fairness? What are we yeah. back yeah. for? No, right? Let's just look at the incidents. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad that makes sense to you. Um, but so yeah, so. You know, I don't know the exact numbers. Maybe I should as a board member, but you know, as a as a as a contributor and a user, um, what well, there was a commercial when I, that will date me when I was growing up. It was like I'm not I'm not just the president. I'm a I'm a client or whatever. Um, so I don't just sit on the board. I'm an active user of the AI incident database too. And so, you know, around the end of the year, there are about 300 separate incident reports in the incident database. And now, you know, just you know, we're a few months into 2023, I, I, there's like two or 300 more incidents. And they're the majority of them from a, you know, quick qualitative analysis standpoint are from generative AI systems and from self-driving cars. There's others, there's others, but, but the bulk of the new incidents are from generative AI systems and self-driving cars. Yeah. And so the way you put this to me for our audience here before That's time, yeah. was... With the release of ChatGPT, so that was in November, the incident rate has doubled basically since then. Yeah, it. I I think that's roughly true. I think that that something along those lines is at least roughly true. Yeah, that's wild. I think. Um, I mean, so this I had this I have this question laid out, mm -hmm. kind of goes into it. So, what do you think the most significant AI risks for businesses that they should be aware of today? Okay, it, it's a good question, and I think. For business people, um, I think there's there's really three main uses of AI, and they two of them have similar risk, and one of them has very different risk. And so, you know, from from my whole career um, until generative AI really started taking off, machine learning was used for two things: it was learned for pattern recognition, so like facial recognition, and it was used for decision support or decision making. Right, so um this is this is essentially classifiers right and and whether it's a big fancy classifier that picks your face out of a million other faces or whether it's a um you know more kind of traditional classifier that that decides whether you're likely to pay your loan back or not um you know we were basically using ai and machine learning to make decisions and or to detect patterns that we would subsequently make decisions about and for those um types of applications that I think still make up the bulk of, of real world applications, um, you know, your, your main risk are the things that we've been talking about, um, bias and discrimination, uh, data privacy violations, poor performance, you know, problems with robustness, problems with re reliability, um, issues with transparency. Um, and, and so that's sort of where the, the field of responsible AI or responsible else Sort of grew up around the risk of, of decision-making AI systems. What I really want business people to understand is that generative AI is not for decision-making, okay? It, like you should not take a system that was trained to generate content and not trained to make decisions and then use that system to make decisions. 
So I think a major risk, so generative AI had, to me has a very different risk profile. Um, a major risk with generative AI, um, and, and this, I would say this is shared with, um, with traditional decision-making or pattern recognition applications, but, but I think it's more acute with generative AI is automation complacency or over-reliance. And that's the, that's the exact issue. I, that's the fancy way to, to, to say that exact issue I was talking about. You can ask ChatGPT for stock tips. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they might be as good as a, as a human investors, but they're still silly. They're still, it, it's just, it just predicted the next word, right? right. Like a lot of humans aren't good at, at stock picking either because it's a random walk. But, um, you know, I, I'm just trying to pick something off the top of my head to, to make the point that you can ask ChatGPT for a decision-making, you know, a decision-making question, and it will give you a good sounding response. But it's really, really critical to understand the only thing that has happened is it generated the most likely response conditioned on the tokens you gave it. And that is not an adequate mechanism for decision making. And so I think, you know, that the major risk to me with um, generative AI is, is automation complacency or over-reliance because people don't understand it's not for decision making. Right. Um, there's significant risk there, or, or at least significant unanswered questions around intellectual property, right? There, there's lawsuits flying around like crazy on intellectual property with generative AI. There's significant questions around data privacy. Um, there, there's, um, you know, there, there's also issues of, and I hate this term, but I'm going to say it so people know what I'm talking about, hallucination, what, what in the good old days we just called errors. So these systems make errors all the time because all they're doing is predicting the next word. And so, you know, sometimes they get that prediction wrong. And, and so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of risk with these systems, depending on how they're deployed. They can be deployed in low risk or high risk settings. Um, I think they're better off. All machine learning is today is, is mostly better off deployed in low risk settings, unless you really know what you're doing. But then generative AI really does have a different risk profile than sort of more traditional decision-making or pattern recognition applications. And this, I think, goes, so all of that goes back to your earlier point of the dangers of anthropomorphizing a system. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is why we don't want to anthropomorphize it. Yeah. Because humans, human, humans have the ability to detect patterns and make decisions. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just don't think we're there yet with um, 2023... AI and machine learning. And I don't, you know, I don't understand why, why people sort of feel pressured not saying things like that. Um, but, but yeah, I just think if, if we're realistic, we're just not, we're just not up to human intelligence yet and may never be. Um, and, and so anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet, but please go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's also in, you know, you would say any of the companies who are releasing the large language models, you know, GTP4, so open AI, mm -hmm. It's in their interest to say, oh, it's near human intelligence, right? Because then mm -hmm. you get some buzz around mm -hmm. the model itself. So yeah. there's a yeah. the publicity aspect, I think, to, to that, that. That's those that's those market incentives driving people away from responsible AI. Right. Right. Um, so I'm gonna I'm I'm not sure if I should jump to some um, audience questions yet. We are getting a few, but I think um maybe I'm curious before we we mm -hmm. get there. I, I, one question I see is how mm -hmm. do you foresee the role of AI ethics evolving in the coming years? All right. I, I, I'm bleak on the outlook of AI ethics and, 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 and not, not in academia, 
Uh, I think in academia, it's likely to to sort of flourish slowly, like like other branches of ethics do, um, in in sort of the research world. But in the commercial world, I, I think I've seen the future of AI ethics, and it's kind of sad. Um, so don't break so, my heart, Patrick. Don't break my heart. All right, all right. Well, it doesn't have to be all. It doesn't have to be all <laughs> companies. But but I mean, I think the trend that I've seen has been that um, you know. It, it was it's almost like company companies accidentally hired people with ethics to do uh, to do AI ethics. And that led to real sort of commercial problems. Right. And and while I might agree with a lot of the sort of famous AI ethicists that saw their big tech careers come to an end, you know, you can also see it from the company's perspective, like their job is to make money and sell products and get products out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. So what I've seen though is is the companies kind of fixed this that bug in their system, right? Like now I feel like AI ethics groups in large research, large commercial research labs are focusing on sort of the the fake Terminator apocalypse, which is you know I I, I do think generative AI and other AI systems can cause catastrophic risk. I I think a deep fake, you know, a, a well timed deep fake or well done deep fake could could cause a war. I mean, I I don't think that there are, I think catastrophic risks are possible, but I think this this sort of pretending that we're at the dawn of AGI and the computers are going to leak themselves together and do bad things is is pretty silly. And I see that, you know, being a focus of AI ethics. And then also I see just people investigating what I would also call really silly topics around like the feelings of large language models. Um, I don't possibly see how large language models have feelings. And so, I, you know, I could be wrong. I, I could have, I could just be too traditionalist here, but, but unfortunately I think I've seen the commercial sort of um, practice of AI ethics head in, in pretty silly directions that, that have no chance of sort of impeding a company's commercial goals. And so, you know, it, it may have been a mistake to mix for-profit companies and anything involving ethics together in the first place, um, but but what I see the rem- the remnants there are are pretty silly and pretty useless, and so I'm hoping that that in academia AI ethics will, will be more serious and focus on more real and substantive topics, um, and and I really look towards the future of risk management, and so I think for companies ethics will continue to be very difficult, uh, but but hopefully risk management is is a better lens for companies to think through how to align their systems with sort of their own corporate or other human values. So, um, you know, that, that's my answer there. I hope it's not too Blake or too upsetting, but, um, no, I think I, it's, I, I, it's a, yeah, you're, it's a really real answer, right? I mean, I thank think you. everyone I imagine on this call knows, you know, that at the end of the day, you know, it's your own business's profit, right? Like that's, what's going to make or break you. So even I think that's why, you know, it's hot, it's difficult to have regulation come, as you're saying, you know, from the inside, right? Because ultimately that first piece, you know, your profit is going to, is going to win out over any sort of ethical. Um, yeah. Yeah. In an organization that's, that's basically mandated to make profits. Yeah. It's, it's just, right. it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat straightforward. It's somewhat straightforward. Yes. Um, so, okay, let's see. We've had a few questions coming in. I want to make sure that the audience mm-hmm. feels heard and gets the chance to ask. Please, yeah, yeah, please. So um, 
Praveen is asking, how do you handle data protection? If AI can easily scrape some of your personal and professional data, as was with the case with ChatGPT and the incident at Samsung. Oh, I think it was with CalCal mm -hmm. Talk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. So, so one, I mean, it, it's a good question. I, I'd like to sort of correct or push back on the premise, one premise of the question, which is that companies can easily get your personal data. Um, that's less and less true, at least in the legal sense. Now, technically, can they go out and kind of scrape and buy or, or you know, by hook and by crook, get your data? In the US and other countries, yes. In other countries like the EU or China, not, not so much. And so, so one, I, you know, I think the public needs to be more, um, needs to advocate better for their own data privacy rights, because while it's absurd that we don't have AI regulation in this country, it's even more absurd that we don't have data privacy regulations or federal level data privacy regulations. So I think, um, one, there are some federal data privacy laws in different verticals. Two, there are more and more state and local laws around data privacy. So I think it, it should be harder and harder for companies to sort of access your personal data and um, predatory and deceptive ways. But the reality is today, at least in the US, um, that, that it is still mostly possible. Um, so I think you just, sadly, you just have to take responsibility and, you know, be careful what you sign up for, be careful what you put on social media, uh, be careful, uh, how you store your information. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I use password, you know, I use password managers, VPNs, um, you know, all, all these kinds of things in an attempt to, to keep my, my data as private as possible. But, but really the issue is that we should just have better data privacy regulation in the U S generally so speaking. So one, this makes me have a, a question about that. I want to go a little bit deeper, but okay. I'm actually realizing that this, what this person was asking about was the incident with Samsung with ChatGPT mm -hmm. in South Korea, mm -hmm. where yeah, yeah. Samsung inputted their own, they yes. used GPT, inputted their own sensitive data. And then now that is open AI has that mm -hmm. data. So it's like, I think there's some, I, I want to be, I think there's some question as to whether OpenAI has the data. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to be clear about that. But but the the very clear advice, I'm aware of this incident, and and you know I can talk about that more. But to me, the very clear advice, and I think this really pushes back at at the value of these generative AI systems. They're great for writing Christmas cards. They're great for writing, you know, poems to my four year old. I don't see really how they can be used today in high-risk applications within large organizations because of the controls that are needed. And so the controls that are needed there are you should not copy and paste into or from the UI, okay? So you have to type in information or get it in there another way that doesn't just replicate your company's proprietary data, um, not, not necessarily because OpenAI has access to it, but more because we're not sure what OpenAI does with it. We're not sure what hackers or attackers could do with it if OpenAI does have it. And we're really not sure about the intersection of um, local and federal, depending on the country, and international data privacy laws and the use of these, these complex new AI systems, right? So I, I don't think it's as clear cut as, as OpenAI stole their data, but I do think there's significant risk there and that... Um, we don't really know what OpenAI does with the data. Um, 
we we don't have any good answers for really how data privacy laws and IP laws that exist are in, in our force work with these systems. So I think in all of that uncertainty, the only thing you can do is not copy and paste into it, which makes it pretty hard to use. And I think, you know, I, I'm aware of many, so companies don't like to come out and say this, but I'm aware of many companies that just ban ChatGPT and other sort of generative AI use case, use user interfaces from their servers the same way they ban Facebook and Snapchat and everything else. Um, and, and so, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but, but the, 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 a, a normal human being would have given the answer of don't just copy and paste into the user, user interface. You, in fact, you, you really should not copy and paste into and from the user interface. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really curious. I actually don't know much about data privacy laws. So can mm -hmm. you just quickly break down how we don't have data privacy law protection? Like how you see that? Um, sure. So, and and then I saw the little snip about, um, are we just going to ignore open AI's privacy policy? And that's why, I, that, that's why I said, no, we're not ignoring it. Um, we, companies have a, have a long run, companies really struggle to follow their own privacy policies, okay? And then moreover, there's a lot of open questions about how complex LLMs interact with existing data privacy and IP laws, even if the privacy policy is followed to a T. But getting to your, you know, getting back to your question, the US, the US tends to take, and again, I'm a, I'm a self-taught policy person, and if there's any real policy people on the line, they'll, they'll see that immediately. But the, the, US, the US tends to regulate at the, and within verticals, within industry verticals. And so there are strong data privacy laws in education. There are strong data privacy laws in healthcare, um, but there's not like there is in the EU or in China or in many other countries, a broad sort of overarching um, country-wide law that sets, a, that, sets out, um, that, that sets out sort of basic rights around how organizations can use data. And so in the EU, you, there's, there's like six legal bases under which data can be used. And none of those legal bases include training your cool AI system. Um, and so literally you have to, you have to have a lead, you know, the, one of the most basic things about data privacy law is, is it sets up legal reasons for which you can use data. And if you are using data outside of those reasons, then it might be illegal. Um, Consent is problematic, but but a big part of data privacy laws where we consent to having our data used. Um, you know things about how long data can be stored, how long data has to be kept, um, the conditions under which it's stored. Those are all kind of basics of data privacy law. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, thank you. That's very clear. Um, I'm gonna fold. So here's another audience question mm -hmm. about, and I'm gonna fold it into an existing one that I had as well. Um, so their question, is there a document or a checklist or even a rubric which can be used to gauge the AI risk or AI applications? And I want to fold that kind of into the larger question that I was going to ask you, which is how can companies very broadly, you know, or just ensure that they're developing and deploying AI systems in an accountable way? Mm -hmm. So broadly, I would send people to the new, you know, as of, as of January 2023, the NIST AI risk management framework. Um, there, there's a million, you can Google a million different responsible AI checklists or trustworthy AI checklist and, and some, some are better than others. Um, but likely the best one or likely some of the best ones come from institutions like NIST and ISO, International Standards Organization. Um, 
And so if, if you're looking for the best advice, I would send you to places like NIST and ISO. They have different standards, but, but they do work on sort of making sure the standards align. And, um, you know, I, 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 it depends what kind of guidance you're looking for. ISO is more like a checklist. You know, ISO basically does supply these very long checklists for like, you know, validating machine learning models, ensuring reliability in neural networks. There's, there are now ISO standards for this, and they really are kind of like deep, long technical checklists that you can apply to your system. NIST is a little bit different. Um, NIST is, does more sort of research and then synthesizes that research into guidance. And so, so NIST has just put forward um, really a mountain of, of AI risk management guidance with their AI risk management framework version one. And that, that would be one of the best resources in the world that, that I would send people to. Now, accountability is one of my favorite topics. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of tackle that a little separately. Um, how, how do you ensure accountability in AI systems? Um, I think there's one direct way, and it's all about explainability and the kind of stuff that Filler does, which is uh, you enable actionable recourse. Okay, so you tell people how a decision was made and provide them a process to appeal it in a logical and timely manner. Right? That, that, is, that is probably the key rubber hits the road. How do I make an AI system accountable? It is I give people the opportunity to appeal wrong decisions. That's like that's the point of the spear on AI accountability, in my uh, in my opinion. Now, you know, one other thing that I always like to point out is uh, Banking regulations, where the use of machine learning and predictive models um, has been regulated for a long time, for decades, uh, they, at, at the largest banks, um, mandate or, or not mandate, but, but sort of it's become tradition and regulators would have a lot of questions for you if you didn't do this. Um, they put one single human being in charge of AI risk. And that one single human being gets... You know, they're, they're well paid and they get big bonuses when they AI machine learning systems work well, and they get penalized and potentially fired when they don't. Moreover, that one single human being, which this stands in direct contrast to most sort of responsible AI directors I run into, um, has a very large staff and a very large budget. Um, and very crucially, they are independent from the technology organization. You know, I run into all kinds of responsible AI directors who have no budget and no staff and report up through the technology chain. That's not, that's not, that doesn't do anything. Right. And so in, in model risk management, they instate a single human being with all of the accountability and that person does not report through technology. They report to the board risk committee and they're hired and fired by the board, not by the CEO and the CTO. So there's both sort of governance internal structures that, that are needed to make AI systems accountable, like chief model risk officers. And then there's also this notion, I, I think there's a lot of things you can do to make AI systems accountable, but on the technical side, I think the point of the spear is allowing people to appeal wrong decisions, which oftentimes entails describing how a decision was made and allowing people to appeal that, you know, the, the logic of the decision or the data on which the decision was based. Mm -hmm. That yes, that really makes sense. Yeah, I think it's also really interesting how you're seeing most people sort of being folded into the technology wing. And yeah. of, I mean, yeah, um, great points. So I'm going to fold in together sort of two questions that I'm seeing. Sure. 
that are sort of broadly on the topics of ethics and sort of who, you know, so this person is saying, when we say ethics, who's setting the baseline? And the, yes. the second person is is asking, you know, AI and data are deeply political and how do we balance the mm -hmm. interests of countries at different economic and social trajectories? And I think these questions are kind of tied. Right. Like, and and, and I think globally agreed upon. Standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think. Um, so you can if you want to see not globally agreed upon standards, but standards on which, you know, bureaucrats and civil society in a large number of countries have agreed on standards, you can go look at the OECD AI work. Um, and, and so OECD does have AI standards, just like NIST and ISO. And OECD is sort of um, a larger group of countries. And so it is possible, it is possible to come to some kind of understanding. But, but I think, you know, this gets at what we were saying earlier. You might have good ideas about fairness. I might have good ideas about fairness. And they might be really different. Also, I mean, it's just obvious that there's too many uh, white dudes and, and just not enough diversity when it comes to setting the baselines of what's considered fair in technology. So, so what I really try to do is, um, one, you know, work with many different kinds of people, both in terms of, of sort of demographic background, but, but perhaps as importantly in terms of, um, professional backgrounds. Like I like to work with statisticians and economists and psychologists and social scientists. And I like to talk to the people who use the systems, right? I like to get a broad spectrum of perspectives on systems, but, but, you know, irregardless of, of what we can do to deal with these issues around bias and privacy bias and privacy and, the, and their sort of normative meanings across different cultures, that's why I look to different kinds of solutions. Like I look to the AI incident database and incident response. I look to risk management, mm -hmm. which um, is actually a pretty boring state field that, that is fairly mature um, and does a good job handling risk, whether that risk is um, an airplane, you know, crashing or an algorithmic system illegally discriminating against millions of people. So um, I, I think that I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a trained ethicist. Um, I almost in my professional work try to sidestep this, this notion of ethics because it's a wicked problem. And that, that's a real term, wicked problem. Um, it, it's you know, it's borderline unsolvable, but, but what we can't, but there are things that we can do, which are, you know, focus on incident response and reducing incidents. There are things that we can do, like just bring sane risk management practices into the AI world that I think are actually a lot more easy and direct than trying to, to tackle these really tough ethical and political. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the question, the question is right. These are data and models are very political and they will be used. For, they are and will be used for political purposes. So I think, you know, we need to be aware of that. We need to deal with those risks. They are very serious. And I, for me, the way that I do it is by focusing on more concrete things, incidents, incident response, preventing incidents and risk management. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, maybe could you say like, because just in that answer, you said, mm -hmm. You know, of course, focusing on incident response, but then also doing, you said, sane risk management. Mm -hmm. Like, could you just give a couple of bullet points on some things that you think would be universally applicable? Yeah. So, so having 
one single person with actual responsibility and accountability in charge of AI risk is important. Um, not a responsible AI director with no staff and no budget that reports to the CTO that doesn't do anything. Um, having executive support for risk management around AI systems. So having senior executives in the board understand what's going on in an organization around AI, having them approve of those things that, that really changes the tenor of what organizations want to do with AI. Um, having clear and transparent and written policies and procedures that people get education on so that the rules of the road are, are well known and, and available to everyone. Um, and, and really this is, this is the most basic thing. This is the most basic thing. If you want people to do risk management, you have to pay them to do it. Okay. It's just, it's, it's really simple. It's, it's really, that's really pretty straightforward, right? Risk management is a boring, tedious, difficult job that has to be done by people that are just as skilled as the developers. So having equal stature is another basic risk management point between validators and, and developers is another really basic point. And, you know, the risk management work is never going to be as exciting as the development work. So you just have to pay people to do it. So people have to be incentivized. People have to be properly incentivized to take um, to take on risk management. And then again, you know, like I was bringing up, you really have to have the right organizational structures to do risk management well. And so if if people are wondering how I know all this, it's actually all in one document called uh, SR-117 by the Federal Reserve. It was released in 2011. Um, it's about 20 pages long, written in plain language. You can and should go read that and you will have a very, you know, a much more clear idea about how to do risk management around these systems. So um, those were just, all right, so one more basic risk management. Nobody, not JP Morgan, not Meta, not the US government has enough resources to manage all of their risk. And so you have to measure and prioritize risk and focus risk management resources on the most um, perceived, most dangerous risk or most threatening risk. And that's another way that, that we do risk management. So it's super helpful. Thank you. Um, so a few more audience questions in our last minute. So do you sure. see clarity emerging in case law that deals with the quote, right to be forgotten from ML training data? If a single individual wants to be quote, forgotten, does that automatically mean the death penalty for all models derived from data sets that included the individual who wants to be forgotten entirely? No, I, I don't. I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't practice. In, and even more than not being a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer that practices in the EU where they actually have a right to be forgotten. We don't have that in the US. OK, so um, what but but many countries do have this. And this kind of gets back to the discussion we were having about chat GPT. I assure, I work with some of the best data privacy people in the world, at least I think I do. And the, the honest truth is, like I was saying, people do not have a clear idea of how the right to be forgotten is going to interact with complex AI systems. People don't have um, a clear idea of whether there truly is a right to explanation under the GDPR in the EU. And if that right does exist, how is that gonna work with AI systems? Um, how do already existing data retention limits and data storage requirements interact with AI systems? People don't, that, you know, the, the questions, the answers to these questions are sort of on a case-by-case -case basis, like, like the questioner said, sort of coming up in, in various court cases or, or other sort of technical problems. Um, and, and my impression is there's just no real clear answer. And that's why I would say that technologies like ChatGPT are risky for large organizations because 
you know, say that you use chat GPT in a country or, or a jurisdiction where there is a strong right to be for, forgotten. No, what's going to happen? People don't know the answer to that question. And so it's not that OpenAI is stealing everybody's data. It's just more that there are the, these unknown risks around using machine learning, any kind of machine learning, um, and, and sort of the burgeoning uh, field of data privacy law. There, there's just a lot of open questions. And if you're a large organization with a big operating bank account that can be sued for a lot of money or face really serious regulatory damages, um, those are risks that you might not want to take despite the technology seeming so cool. We have, gosh, there's so many, still so many good questions coming up. I'm going to ask this last one before we sort of wrap up, which is, so what do you think about the position of Elon Musk and others, you know, who think about holding back on AI development in any way? Do you think this- Oh, that's really simple. Elon Musk needs, needs people to think AI is better than it actually is. That's why he signed that letter, Okay. Um, OpenAI needs its competitors to slow down their development. That's why they signed that letter. Um, I don't think anyone of the sophistication of an Elon Musk or, or the CEO of, of a major AI company thinks that we're at the dawn of AGI, right? I think that they signed these letters for sort of, um, uh, you know, political reasons. Like we were just saying, oh, this is all political, right? Uh, Tesla needs people, needs, needs the government and consumers to be confused about the current state of self-driving AI, which isn't that good. Go look at the AI incident database. Um, OpenAI needs their competitors to slow down because many of their competitors have a lot more money and a lot more people than them. And so, you know, just to be as direct as possible, that's why I think those companies sign those letters. And, and you know, I know we might be going over here a lot, but this is actually one thing that, that makes me the most mad. Um, I am very, very frustrated by efforts that divert AI risk management resources to a perceived, you know, future or near future catastrophic Terminator type risk. It's fake. And in the worst cases, it's, it's deceitful, right? Literally, there are people involved in, at the highest levels of these efforts who are trying to move dollars away from efforts that might actually work to manage risk because that will slow down their progress and move money into sort of these fake efforts around, you know, this is the dawn of AGI and we need to be worried about Skynet. And so I, I get really animated on these topics, but, but just to be clear, you know, there's no Skynet. We're not close to Skynet. We're not close to the Terminator. If people are advocating moving spending towards those kinds of efforts, then I would question, you know, whether they're doing so in good faith or not. Yeah, I'm so glad we asked that question. What an excellent um, point to end on. Patrick, I've just enjoyed this conversation so much. I've learned so much from you today. Um, Very kind. So glad that you could be here. I want to say that we'll probably continue this conversation on our community. So if okay. people want to sign up on our Slack channel, um, we can uh, populate with some of the questions we didn't get to and answer them there. Um, otherwise, I just want to say thanks to all the attendees for coming. And again, I know I already said thank you, Patrick, but man, really fascinating hour. I've learned a lot. Um, very kind of you. Very kind. Happy to be here. And, you know, audience, please feel free to connect on LinkedIn. That's the easiest place to find me where you can tell me I'm smart or stupid. People do it all the time. So you can have your turn. But uh, great to be here. And, and thank you so much. <laughs>